Chapter 8 of The Master of Ballantrae by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 8 The Enemy in the House. It is a strange thing that I should be at a stick for a date, the date besides of an incident that changed the very nature of my life and sent us all into foreign lands. But the truth is, I was stricken out of all my habitudes, and find my journals very ill-read up. Note. Ordered. Returned text. The day not indicated sometimes for a week or two together, and the whole fashion of the thing like that of a man near desperate. It was late in March, at least, or early in April, 1764. I had slept heavily, and wakened with a premonition of some evil to befall. So strong was this upon my spirit that I hurried downstairs in my shirt and breeches, and my hand, I remember, shook upon the rail. It was a cold, sunny morning with a thick white frost. The blackbirds sang exceeding sweet and loud about the house of Durastir, and there was a noise of the sea in all the chambers. As I came by the doors of the hall, another sound arrested me, of voices talking. I drew nearer and stood like a man dreaming, here was certainly a human voice, and that in my own master's house, and yet I knew it not. Certainly human speech, and that in my native land, and yet, listen as I pleased, I could not catch one syllable. An old tale started up in my mind of a fairy wife, or perhaps only a wandering stranger, that came to the place of my father some generations back and stayed the matter of a week talking often in a tongue that signified nothing to the hearers, and went again as she had come under cloud of night, leaving not so much as a name behind her. A little fear I had, but more curiosity, and I opened the hall door and entered. The supper things still lay upon the table. The shutters were still closed, although day peeped in the divisions, and the great room was lighted only with a single taper and the shining of the fire. Close in the chimney sat two men. The one that was wrapped in a cloak and wore boots, I knew at once. It was the bird of ill omen back again. Of the other, who was set close to the red embers and made up into a bundle like a mummy, I could but see that he was an alien, of a darker hue than any man of Europe, very frailly built, with a singular tall forehead and a secret eye. Several packets and a small valise were on the floor, and to judge by the smallness of this luggage, and by the condition of the master's boots, grossly patched by some unscrupulous country cobbler, evil had not prospered. He rose upon my entrance, our eyes crossed, and I know not why it should have been, but my courage rose like a lark on a May morning. Ha! said I, is this you? and I was pleased with the unconcern of my own voice. "'It is even myself, worthy McKellar,' says the master. "'This time you have brought the black dog visibly upon your back,' I continued. "'Referring to Secundra Das,' asked the master, "'let me present you. He is a native gentleman of India.' "'Hum,' said I. "'I am no great lover either of you or your friends, Mr. Bally.' but I will let a little daylight in and have a look at you. And so saying, I undid the shutters of the eastern window. By the light of the morning I could perceive the man was changed. Later, when we were all together, I was 
more struck to see how lightly time had dealt with him, but the first glance was otherwise. "'You are getting an old man,' said I. A shade came upon his face. "'If you could see yourself,' said he, "'you would perhaps not dwell upon the topic.' "'But,' I returned, "'old age is nothing to me. "'I think I have been always old, "'and I am now, I thank God, "'better known and more respected. "'It is not every one that can say that, Mr. Bally. "'The lines in your brow are calamities. "'Your life begins to close in upon you like a prison. "'Death will soon be rapping at the door.' and I see not from what source you are to draw your consolations. Here the master addressed himself to Secundra Das in Hindustani, from which I gathered, I freely confess with a high degree of pleasure, that my remarks annoyed him. All this while, you may be sure, my mind had been busy upon other matters, even while I rallied my enemy, and chiefly as to how I should communicate secretly and quickly with my lord. To this... In the breathing space now given me, I turned all the forces of my mind, when, suddenly shifting my eyes, I was aware of the man himself standing in the doorway, and to all appearance quite composed. He had no sooner met my looks than he stepped across the threshold. The master heard him coming, and advanced upon the other side. About four feet apart, these brothers came to a full pause, and stood exchanging steady looks, and then my lord smiled bowed a little forward, and turned briskly away. McKellar, says he, we must see to breakfast for these travellers. It was plain the master was a trifle disconcerted, but he assumed the more impudence of speech and manner. I am as hungry as a hawk, says he. Let it be something good, Henry. My lord turned to him with the same hard smile. Lord Durris, dear, says he. Oh, never in the family, returned the master. Everyone in this house renders me my proper title, says my lord. If it please you to make an exception, I will leave you to consider what appearance it will bear to strangers, and whether it may not be translated as an effect of impotent jealousy. I could have clapped my hands together with delight, the more so, as my lord left no time for any answer, but bidding me with a sign to follow him, went straight out of the hall. Come quick, says he. We have to sweep vermin from the house. And he sped through the passages with so swift a step that I could scarce keep up with him, straight to the door of John Paul, the which he opened without summons, and walked in. John was to all appearance sound asleep, but my lord made no pretense of waking him. John Paul, said he, speaking as quietly as ever I heard him, you served my father long, or I would pack you from the house like a dog. If in half an hour's time I find you gone, you shall continue to receive your wages in Edinburgh. If you linger here or in St. Bride's, old man, old servant, and altogether, I shall find some very astonishing way to make you smart for your disloyalty. Up and be gone. The door you let them in by will serve for your departure. I do not choose my son shall see your face again. I am rejoiced to find you bear the thing so quietly, said I, when we were forth again by ourselves. Quietly, cries he, and put my hand suddenly against his heart, which struck upon his bosom like a sledge. At this revelation I was filled with wonder and fear. There was no constitution could bear so violent a strain, his least of all, that was unhinged already, 
and I decided in my mind that we must bring this monstrous situation to an end. It would be well, I think, if I took word to my lady, said I. Indeed, he should have gone himself, but I counted not in vain on his indifference. I, says he, do. I will hurry breakfast. We must all appear at the table. Even Alexander, it must appear we are untroubled. I ran to my lady's room, and with no preparatory cruelty disclosed my news. My mind was long ago made up, said she. We must make our packet secretly today and leave secretly tonight. Thank heaven we have another house. The first ship that sails shall bear us to New York. And what of him? I asked. We leave him, dearest dear, she cried. Let him work his pleasure upon that. Not so, by your leave, said I. There shall be a dog at his heels that can hold fast. Bed he shall have, and board, and a horse to ride upon, if he behave himself. But the keys, if you think well of it, my lady, shall be left in the hands of one Mackellar. There will be good care taken. Trust him for that. Mr. Mackellar, she cried, I thank you for that thought. All shall be left in your hands. If we must go into a savage country, I bequeath it to you to take our vengeance. Send McConachy to St. Bride's to arrange privately for horses, and to call the lawyer my lord must have procuration. At that moment my lord came to the door, and we opened our plan to him. I will never hear of it, he cried. He would think I feared him. I will stay in my own house, please God, until I die. There lives not the man can beard me out of it. Once and for all, here I am, and here I stay, in spite of all the devils in hell. I can give no idea of the vehemency of his words and utterance, but we both stood aghast, and I in particular, who had been a witness of his former self-restraint. My lady looked at me with an appeal that went to my heart, and recalled me to my wits. I made her a private sign to go, and when my lord and I were alone, went up to him, where he was racing to and fro in one end of the room like a half-lunatic, and set my hand firmly on his shoulder. My lord, says I, I am going to be the plain dealer once more, if for the last time so much the better, for I am grown weary of the part. Nothing will change me, he answered. God forbid I should refuse to hear you, but nothing will change me. This he said firmly, with no signal of the former violence, which already raised my hopes. Very well, said I. I can afford to waste my breath. I pointed to a chair, and he sat down and looked at me. I can remember a time when my lady very much neglected you, said I. I never spoke of it while it lasted, returned my lord, with a high flush of colour, and it is all changed now. Do you know how much, I said, do you know how much it is all changed? The tables are turned, my lord. It is my lady that now courts you for a word, a look. Aye, and courts you in vain. Do you know with whom she passes her days while you are out gallivanting in the policies? My lord, she is glad to pass the time with a certain dry old grieve, note, land steward, return to text, by the name of Ephraim McKellar, and I think you may be able to remember what that means, for I am the more in a mistake, or you were once driven to the same company yourself. McKellar, cries my lord, getting to his feet, oh my God! God, Mackellar! It is neither the name of Mackellar nor the name of God that can change the truth, said I, and I am telling you the fact. Now, for you that suffered so much to deal out the same suffering to another, is that the part of any Christian? But you are so swallowed up in your new friend 
that the old are all forgotten. They are all clean vanished from your memory, and yet they stood by you at the darkest, my lady not the least. And does my lady ever cross your mind? Does it ever cross your mind what she went through that night? Or what manner of a wife she has been to you thenceforward? Or in what kind of a position she finds herself today? Never. It is your pride to stay and face him out, and she must stay along with you. Oh, my lord's pride, that's the great affair. And yet she is the woman, and you are a great hulking man. She is the woman that you swore to protect, and, more betoken, the own mother of that son of yours. You are speaking very bitterly, Mackellar, said he, but the Lord knows I fear you are speaking very true. I have not proved worthy of my happiness. Bring my lady back. My lady was waiting near at hand to learn the issue. When I brought her in, my lord took a hand of each of us and laid them both upon his bosom. I have had two friends in my life, said he. All the comfort ever I had, it came from one or other. When you tour in a mind, I think I would be an ungrateful dog. He shut his mouth very hard and looked on us with swimming eyes. Do what you like with me, says he. Only don't they? He stopped again. Do what you please with me. God knows I love and honour you. And dropping our two hands, he turned his back and went and gazed out of the window. But my lady ran after, calling his name, and threw herself upon his neck in a passion of weeping. I went out and shut the door behind me and stood and thanked God from the bottom of my heart. At the breakfast board, according to my lord's design, we were all met. The master had by that time plucked off his patched boots and made a toilet suitable to the hour. Secundra Das was no longer bundled up in wrappers, but wore a decent plain black suit, which misbecame him strangely, and the pair were at the great window looking forth when the family entered. They turned, and the black man, as they had already named him in the house, bowed almost to his knees, but the master was for running forward like one of the family. My lady stopped him, curtsying low from the far end of the hall and keeping her children at her back. My lord was a little in front, so there were the three cousins of Durrisdeer face to face. The hand of time was very legible on all. I seemed to read in their changed faces a memento mori, and what affected me still more, it was the wicked man that bore his years the handsomest. My lady was quite transfigured into the matron, a becoming woman for the head of a great tableful of children and dependents. My lord was grown slack in his limbs. He stooped. He walked with a running motion, as though he had learned again from Master Alexander. His face was drawn. It seemed a trifle longer than of old, and it wore at times a smile very singularly mingled, and which, in my eyes, appeared both bitter and pathetic. But the master still bore himself erect, although perhaps with effort, his brow barred about the centre with imperious lines, his mouth set as for command. He had all the gravity and something of the splendour of Satan in the paradise lost. I could not help but see the man with admiration, and was only surprised that I saw him with so little fear. But indeed, as long as we were at the table, it seemed as if his authority were quite vanished, 
and his teeth all drawn. We had known him a magician that controlled the elements, and here he was transformed into an ordinary gentleman, chatting like his neighbours at the breakfast board. For now the father was dead and my lord and lady reconciled, in what ear was he to pour his calumnies? It came upon me in a kind of vision how hugely I had overrated the man's subtlety. He had his malice still, he was false as ever, and, the occasion being gone that made his strength, he sat there impotent. He was still the viper, but now spent his venom on a file. Two more thoughts occurred to me while yet we sat at breakfast. The first, that he was abashed, I had almost said distressed, to find his wickedness quite unavailing. The second, that perhaps my lord was in the right, and we did amiss to fly from our dismasted enemy. But my poor master's leaping heart came in my mind, and I remembered it was for his life we played the coward. When the meal was over, the master followed me to my room, and, taking a chair which I had never offered him, asked me what was to be done with him. Why, Mr. Bally, said I, the house will still be open to you for a time. For a time, says he, I do not know if I quite take your meaning. It is plain enough, said I, we keep you for our reputation. As soon as you shall have publicly disgraced yourself by some of your misconduct, we shall pack you forth again. You are become an impudent rogue, said the master, bending his brows at me dangerously. I learned in a good school, I returned. And you must have perceived yourself that with my old lord's death your power is quite departed. I do not fear you now, Mr. Bally. I think even, God forgive me, that I take a certain pleasure in your company. He broke out in a burst of laughter, which I clearly saw to be assumed. I have come with empty pockets, says he after a pause. I do not think there will be any money going, I replied. I would advise you not to build on that. I shall have something to say on the point, he returned. Indeed, said I. I have not a guess what it will be then. Oh, you affect confidence, said the master. I have still one strong position, that you people fear a scandal, and I enjoy it. Pardon me, Mr. Bally, says I, we do not in the least fear a scandal against you. He laughed again. You have been studying repartee, he said, but speech is very easy and sometimes very deceptive. I warn you fairly, you will find me vitriol in the house. You would do wiser to pay money down and see my back. And with that he waved his hand to me and left the room. A little after my lord came with the lawyer, Mr. Carlyle. A bottle of old wine was brought, and we all had a glass before we fell to business. The necessary deeds were then prepared and executed, and the Scots estates made over in trust to Mr. Carlyle and myself. There is one point, Mr. Carlyle, said my lord, when these affairs had been adjusted, on which I wish that you would do us justice. This sudden departure, coinciding with my brother's return, will be certainly commented on. I wish you would discourage any conjunction of the two. I will make a point of it, my lord, said Mr. Carlyle. The mas Mr. Bally does not then accompany you? It is a point I must approach, said my lord. Mr. Bally remains at Durris, dear, under the care of Mr. McKellar. 
and I do not mean that he shall even know our destination. Common report, however, began the lawyer. Ah, but, Mr. Carlyle, this is to be a secret quite among ourselves, interrupted my lord. None but you and Mackellar are to be made acquainted with my movements. And Mr. Bally stays here? Quite so, said Mr. Carlyle. The powers you leave... Then he broke off again. Mr. Mackellar, we have a rather heavy weight upon us. No doubt, sir, said I. No doubt, said he. Mr. Bally will have no voice? He will have no voice, said my lord, and, I hope, no influence. Mr. Bally is not a good adviser. I see, said the lawyer. By the way, has Mr. Bally means? I understand him to have nothing, replied my lord. I give him table, fire, and candle in this house. And in the matter of an allowance, if I am to share the responsibility, you will see how highly desirable it is that I should understand your views, said the lawyer. On the question of an allowance? There will be no allowance, said my lord. I wish Mr. Bally to live very private. We have not always been gratified with his behaviour. And in the matter of money, I added, he has shown himself an infamous bad husband. Glance your eye upon that docket, Mr. Carlyle, where I have brought together the different sums the man has drawn from the estate in the last fifteen or twenty years. The total is pretty. Mr. Carlyle made the motion of whistling. I had no guess of this, said he. Excuse me once more, my lord, if I appear to push you, but it is really desirable I should penetrate your intentions. Mr. Mackellar might die when I should find myself alone upon this trust. Would it not be rather your lordship's preference that Mr. Ballet should <clears throat> leave the country? My lord looked at Mr. Carlyle. Why do you ask that? said he. I gather, my lord, that Mr. Ballet is not a comfort to his family, says the lawyer with a smile. My lord's face became suddenly knotted. I wish he was in hell, cried he, and filled himself a glass of wine, but with a hand so tottering that he spilled the half into his bosom. This was the second time that in the midst of the most regular and wise behaviour his animosity had spurted out. It startled Mr. Carlyle, who observed my lord thenceforth with covert curiosity, and to me it restored the certainty that we were acting for the best in view of my lord's health and reason. Except for this explosion, the interview was very successfully conducted. No doubt Mr. Carlyle would talk, as lawyers do, little by little. We could thus feel we had laid the foundations of a better feeling in the country, and the man's own misconduct would certainly complete what we had begun. Indeed, before his departure, the lawyer showed us there had already gone abroad some glimmerings of the truth. I should perhaps explain to you, my lord, said he, pausing with his hat in his hand, that I have not been altogether surprised with your lordship's dispositions in the case of Mr. Bally. Something of this nature oozed out when he was last in Durrisdeer. There was some talk of a woman at St. Bride's, to whom you had behaved extremely handsome, and Mr. Bally with no small degree of cruelty. There was the entail again, which was much controverted. In short, there was no want of talk back and forward, and some of our wiseacres took up a strong opinion. I remained in suspense, as became one of my cloth. But Mr. Mackellar's docket here has finally opened my eyes. I do not think, Mr. Mackellar, that you and I will give him that much rope. The rest of that important day passed prosperously through. 
it was our policy to keep the enemy in view, and I took my turn to be his watchman with the rest. I think his spirits rose as he perceived us to be so attentive, and I know that mine insensibly declined. What chiefly daunted me was the man's singular dexterity to worm himself into our troubles. You may have felt, after a horse accident, the hand of a bone-setter artfully divide and interrogate the muscles and settle strongly on the injured place. It was so with the master's tongue, that was so cunning to question, and his eyes that were so quick to observe. I seemed to have said nothing, and yet to have let all out. Before I knew where I was, the man was condoling with me on my lord's neglect of my lady and myself, and his hurtful indulgence to his son. On this last point I perceived him, with panic fear, to return repeatedly. The boy had displayed a certain shrinking from his uncle. It was strong in my mind his father had been fool enough to indoctrinate the same, which was no wise beginning. And when I looked upon the man before me, still so handsome, so apt a speaker, with so great a variety of fortunes to relate, I saw he was the very personage to captivate a boyish fancy. John Paul had left only that morning. It was not to be supposed he had been altogether dumb upon his favourite subject, so that here would be Master Alexander in the part of Dido with the curiosity inflamed to hear, and there would be the master, like a diabolical Aeneas, full of matter the most pleasing in the world to any youthful ear, such as battles, sea disasters, flights, the forests of the West, and, since his later voyage, the ancient cities of the Indies. How cunningly these baits might be employed, and what an empire might be so founded, little by little, in the mind of any boy, stood obviously clear to me. There was no inhibition so long as the man was in the house that would be strong enough to hold these two apart. For if it be hard to charm serpents, it is no very difficult thing to cast a glamour on a little chip of manhood, not very long in breeches. I recalled an ancient sailor man, who dwelt in a lone house beyond the figot winds, I believe he called it, after Portobello, and how the boys would troop out of Leith on a Saturday and sit and listen to his swearing tales as thick as crows about a carrion, a thing I often remarked as I went by a young student on my own more meditative holiday diversion. Many of these boys went, no doubt, in the face of an express command. Many feared and even hated the old brute of whom they made their hero, and I have seen them flee from him when he was tipsy and stone him when he was drunk, and yet there they came each Saturday, how much more easily would a boy like Master Alexander fall under the influence of a high-looking, high-spoken gentleman adventurer who could conceive the fancy to entrap him? And the influence gained, how easy to employ it for the child's perversion. I doubt if our enemy had named Master Alexander three times before I perceived which way his mind was aiming. All this train of thought and memory passed in one pulsation through my own, and you may say I started back as though an open hole had gaped across a pathway. Master Alexander, there was the weak point, there was the eve in our perishable paradise, and the serpent was already hissing on the trail. I promise you I went the more heartily about the preparations. My last scruple gone, the danger of delay written before me in huge characters. From that moment forth I seem not to have sat down or breathed. Now I would be at my post with the master and his Indian. 
now in the garret buckling a valise, now sending forth McConachie by the side postern and the wood-path to bear it to the trysting-place, and again snatching some words of counsel with my lady. This was the verso of our life in Durastir that day, but on the recto all appeared quite settled, as of a family at home in its paternal seat, and what perturbation may have been observable, the master would set down to the blow of his unlooked-for coming, and the fear he was accustomed to inspire. Supper went creditably off, cold salutations passed, and the company trooped to their respective chambers. I attended the master to the last. We had put him next door to his Indian, in the north wing, because that was the most distant, and could be severed from the body of the house with doors. I saw he was a kind friend or a good master, whichever it was, to his Secundra Das, seeing to his comfort, bending the fire with his own hand, for the Indian complained of cold, inquiring as to the rice on which the stranger made his diet, talking with him pleasantly in the Hindustani, while I stood by, my candle in my hand, and affected to be overcome with slumber. At length the master observed my signals of distress, I perceive, says he, that you have all your ancient habits, early to bed and early to rise. Yawn yourself away. Once in my own room I made the customary motions of undressing, so that I might time myself, and when the cycle was complete, set my tinder-box ready, and blew out my taper. The matter of an hour afterward I made a light again, put on my shoes of list that I had worn by my lord's sick-bed, and set forth into the house to call the voyagers. All were dressed and waiting, my lord, my lady, Miss Catherine, Master Alexander, my lady's woman, Christie, and I observed the effect of secrecy, even upon quite innocent persons, that one after another showed in the chink of the door a face as white as paper. We slipped out of the side postern into the night of darkness, scarce broken by a star or two, so that at first we groped and stumbled and fell among the bushes, a few hundred yards up the wood-path, McConachie was waiting us with a great lantern. So the rest of the way we went easy enough, but still in a kind of guilty silence. A little beyond the abbey the path debouched on the main road, and some quarter of a mile farther, at the place called Eagles, where the moors begin, we saw the lights of the two carriages stand shining by the wayside. Scarce a word or two was uttered at our parting, and these regarded business a silent grasping of hands, a turning of faces aside, and the thing was over. The horses broke into a trot, the lamplight sped like will-o'-the-wisp upon the broken moorland, it dipped beyond stony bray, and there were McConachie and I alone with our lantern on the road. There was one thing more to wait for, and that was the reappearance of the coach upon Cartmore. It seems they must have pulled up upon the summit, looked back for a last time, and seen our lantern not yet moved away from the place of separation, for a lamp was taken from a carriage, and waved three times up and down by way of a farewell. And then they were gone indeed, having looked their last, on the kind roof of Durastir, their faces toward a barbarous country. I never knew before the greatness of that vault of night in which we two poor serving-men, the one old, the one elderly, stood for the first time deserted, I had never felt before my own dependency upon the countenance of others. The sense of isolation burned in my bowels like a fire. It seemed that we who remained at home were the true exiles, and that Durastir and Solway side 
and all that made my country native, its air good to me, and its language welcome, had gone forth, and was far over the sea with my old masters. The remainder of that night I paced to and fro on the smooth highway, reflecting on the future and the past. My thoughts, which at first dwelled tenderly on those who were just gone, took a more manly temper as I considered what remained for me to do. Day came upon the inland mountain tops, and the fowls began to cry, and the smoke of homesteads to arise in the brown bosom of the moors, before I turned my face homeward, and went down the path to where the roof of Durastir shone in the morning by the sea. At the customary hour I had the master called, and awaited his coming in the hall with a quiet mind. He looked about him, at the empty room, and the three covers set. We are a small party, said he. How comes that? This is the party to which we must grow accustomed, I replied. He looked at me with a sudden sharpness. What is all this? said he. You and I and your friend Mr. Das are now all the company, I replied. My lord, my lady, and the children are gone upon a voyage. Upon my word, said he, can this be possible? I have indeed fluttered your vulsions and carioli. This is no reason why our breakfast should go cold. Sit down, Mr. Mackellar, if you please, taking as he spoke the head of the table, which I had designed to occupy myself, and as we eat you can give me the details of this evasion. I could see he was more affected than his language carried, and I determined to equal him in coolness. I was about to ask you to take the head of the table, said I, for though I am now thrust into the position of your host, I could never forget that you were, after all, a member of the family. For a while he played the part of entertainer, giving directions to McConachie, who received them with an evil grace, and attending specially upon Secundra. And where has my good family withdrawn to? he asked, carelessly. Ah, Mr. Ballet, that is another point, said I. I have no orders to communicate their destination. To me, he corrected. To any one, said I. It is the less pointed, said the master. C'est de bon ton. My brother improves, as he continues. And I, dear Mr. Mackellar. You will have bed and board, Mr. Bally, said I. I am permitted to give you the run of the cellar, which is pretty reasonably stocked. You have only to keep well with me, which is no very difficult matter, and you shall want neither for wine nor a saddle-horse. He made an excuse to send McConachie from the room. And for money? he inquired. Have I to keep well with my good friend Mackellar for my pocket money also? This is a pleasing return to the principles of boyhood. There was no allowance made, said I. But I will take it on myself to see you are supplied in moderation. In moderation, he repeated. And you will take it on yourself. He drew himself up and looked about the hall at the dark rows of portraits. In the name of my ancestors, I thank you, says he, and then with a return to irony, but there must certainly be an allowance for Secundra Das, he said. It is not possible they have omitted that. I will make a note of it and ask instructions when I write, said I. And he, with a sudden change of manner and leaning forward with an elbow on the table, do you think this entirely wise? I execute my orders, Mr. Bally, said I. Profoundly modest, said the master. 
perhaps not equally ingenuous. You told me yesterday my power was fallen with my father's death. How comes it then that a peer of the realm flees under cloud of night out of a house in which his fathers have stood several sieges, that he conceals his address, which must be a matter of concern to his gracious majesty and to the whole republic, and that he should leave me in possession and under the paternal charge of his invaluable Mackellar? This smacks to me of a very considerable and genuine apprehension. I sought to interrupt him with some not very truthful denegation, but he waved me down and pursued his speech. I say it smacks of it, he said, but I will go beyond that, for I think the apprehension grounded. I came to this house with some reluctancy. In view of the manner of my last departure, nothing but necessity could have induced me to return. Money, however, is that which I must have. You will not give with a good grace. Well, I have the power to force it from you. Inside of a week, without leaving Durrisdeer, I will find out where these fools are fled to. I will follow, and when I have run my quarry down, I will drive a wedge into that family that shall once more burst it into shivers. I shall see then whether my lord Durrisdeer, said with indescribable scorn and rage, will choose to buy my absence, and you will all see whether by that time I decide for profit or revenge." I was amazed to hear the man so open. The truth is, he was consumed with anger at my lord's successful flight, felt himself to figure as a dupe, and was in no humour to weigh language. "'Do you consider this entirely wise?' said I, copying his words. "'These twenty years I have lived by my poor wisdom,' he answered, with a smile that seemed almost foolish in its vanity. "'And come out a beggar in the end,' said I, "'if beggar be a strong enough word for it i would have you to observe mr mackellar cried he with a sudden imperious heat in which i could not but admire him that i am scrupulously civil copy me in that and we shall be the better friends throughout this dialogue i had been incommoded by the observation of secundra das not one of us since the first word had made a feint of eating our eyes were in each other's faces you might say in each other's bosoms and those of the indian troubled me with a certain changing brightness as of comprehension but i brushed the fancy aside telling myself once more he understood no english only from the gravity of both voices and the occasional scorn and anger in the masters smelled out there was something of import in the wind for the matter of three weeks we continued to live together in the house of Durrisdeer. The beginning of that most singular chapter of my life, what I must call my intimacy with the master. At first he was somewhat changeable in his behaviour, now civil, now returning to his old manner of flouting me to my face, and in both I met him halfway. Thanks be to Providence, I had now no measure to keep with the man and I was never afraid of black brows, only of naked swords, so that I found a certain entertainment in these bouts of incivility, and was not always ill-inspired in my rejoinders. At last, it was at supper, I had a droll expression that entirely vanquished him. He laughed again and again, and, Who would have guessed, he cried, that this old wife had any wit under his petticoats? It is no wit, Mr. Bally, said I, a dry Scots humour and something of the driest, and indeed I never had the least pretension to be thought a wit. 
From that hour he was never rude with me, but all passed between us in a manner of pleasantry. One of our chief times of daffing, note fooling, return to text, was when he required a horse, another bottle, or some money. He would approach me then after the manner of a schoolboy, and I would carry it on by way of being his father, on both sides with an infinity of mirth. I could not but perceive that he thought more of me, which tickled that poor part of mankind, the vanity. He dropped, besides, I must suppose, unconsciously, into a manner that was not only familiar, but even friendly. And this, on the part of one who had so long detested me, I found the more insidious. He went little abroad, sometimes even refusing invitations. No, he would say, what do I care for these thick-headed bonnet-lairds? I will stay at home, Mackellar, and we shall share a bottle quietly, and have one of our good talks. And indeed, mealtime at Durrisdeer must have been a delight to anyone, by reason of the brilliancy of the discourse. He would often express wonder at his former indifference to my society. But you see, he would add, we were upon opposite sides, and so we are today, but let us never speak of that. I would think much less of you if you were not staunch to your employer. You are to consider he seemed to me quite impotent for any evil, and how it is a most engaging form of flattery when, after many years, tardy justice is done to a man's character and parts. But I have no thought to excuse myself. I was to blame. I let him cajole me, and, in short, I think the watchdog was gone sound asleep when he was suddenly aroused. I should say the Indian was continually travelling to and fro in the house. He never spoke, save in his own dialect and with the master, walked without sound, and was always turning up where you would least expect him, fallen into a deep abstraction, from which he would start upon your coming to mock you with one of his grovelling obeisances. He seemed so quiet, so frail, and so wrapped in his own fancies, that I came to pass him over without much regard, or even to pity him for a harmless exile from his country. And yet, without doubt, the creature was still eavesdropping, and without doubt it was through his stealth and my security that our secret reached the master. It was one very wild night after supper, and when we had been making more than usually merry, that the blow fell on me. This is all very fine, says the master, but we should do better to be buckling our valise. Why so, I cried, are you leaving? Well, we are all leaving tomorrow in the morning, said he, for the port of Glasgow first, thence to the province of New York. I suppose I must have groaned aloud. Yes, he continued, I boasted. I said a week, and it has taken me near twenty days, but never mind, I shall make it up, I will go the faster. Have you the money for this voyage? I asked. Dear and ingenuous personage, I have, said he. Blame me if you choose for my duplicity, but while I have been wringing shillings from my daddy, I had a stock of my own put by against a rainy day. You will pay for your own passage if you choose to accompany us on our flank march. I have enough for Secundra and myself, but not more. Enough to be dangerous, not enough to be generous. There is, however, an outside seat upon the chaise, which I will let you have upon a moderate commutation, so that the whole menagerie can go together, the house-dog, the monkey, and the tiger. I go with you, said I. 
I count upon it, said the master. You have seen me foiled. I mean you shall see me victorious. To gain that, I will risk wetting you like a sop in this wild weather. And at least, I added, you know very well you could not throw me off. Not easily, said he. You put your finger on the point with your usual excellent good sense. I never fight with the inevitable. I suppose it is useless to appeal to you, said I. Believe me, perfectly, said he. And yet, if you would give me the time, I could write, I began. And what would be my Lord Durastier's answer, says he? Ay, said I, that is the rub. And at any rate, how much more expeditious that I should go myself, says he. But all this is quite a waste of breath. At seven tomorrow, the chaise will be at the door. For I start from the door, Mackellar. I do not skulk through woods and take my chaise upon the wayside. Shall we say at eagles? My mind was now thoroughly made up. Can you spare me a quarter of an hour at St. Bride's? said I. I have a little necessary business with Carlyle. An hour, if you prefer, said he. I do not seek to deny that the money for your seat is an object to me, and you could always get the first to Glasgow with saddle horses. Well, said I, I never thought to leave old Scotland. It will brisken you up, says he. This will be an ill journey for someone, I said. I think, sir, for you. Something speaks in my bosom, and so much it says plain that this is an ill-omened journey. If you take to prophecy, says he, listen to that. There came up a violent squall off the open solway, and the rain was dashed on the great windows. Do you ken what that bodes, warlock, said he in a broad accent, that there'll be a man Mackellar unco-sick at sea? When I got to my chamber, I sat there under a painful excitation, hearkening to the turmoil of the gale, which struck full upon the gable of the house. What with the pressure of my spirits, the eldritch cries of the wind among the turret-tops, and the perpetual trepidation of the masoned house, sleep fled my eyelids utterly. I sat by my taper, looking on the black panes of the window, where the storm appeared continually on the point of bursting in its entrance, and upon that empty field I beheld a perspective of consequences that made the hair to rise upon my scalp. The child corrupted, the home broken up, my master dead, or worse than dead, my mistress plunged in desolation. All these I saw before me painted brightly on the darkness, and the outcry of the wind appeared to mock at my inaction. End of chapter 8 Recording by Thomas Copeland.